0: Welcome to Stuff You Should Know, from HowStuffWorks.com.
1: Hey, and welcome to the podcast. I'm Josh Clark. There's Charles W. Cloak and Dagger, Dabby Coleman Bryant. Ooh. You remember that movie?
0: Yeah. Oh, man, that was so good. It was. That was a good movie for boys our age, I think.
1: Yeah. It was so good; it managed to make the San Antonio Riverwalk look interesting. <laughs> Man, you've been bagging on that <laughs>
0: since, since you walked it.
1: <laughs> well, I had a—I think it was built up in my mind by that movie. You know what I
0: mean? Yeah, I don't remember that being in the movie, but I haven't—I don't think I've seen that since I was, you know, thirteen.
1: There's a big chase scene that involved the Riverwalk. <laughs> well, maybe that was a problem. And also, um, there is Jerry Leslie Nielsen Roland. Yes, from Spy Hard. Uh, and this is Stuff You Should Know. Yes. This is a, this could be a good one. It could also be extraordinarily confusing. Uh Uh-huh. Maybe a little dry. Maybe. Um, and, uh, but brother, if you love bureaucracies, you are gonna love this one.
0: Yeah, boy, that really came through, huh?
1: Yeah, if you're into orgs and flowcharts and directors, <laughs> but not directorates, you're going to just love this kind of stuff.
0: Yeah, and I apologize about my squinting. Uh, I lost my glasses. Oh, no. And it takes, and
1: I had become, you know, I'd grown to depend on them, to be honest. You're like Velma. I am. That's terrible. I mean, like, like lost them, lost them, or they're just like on your bedside, you forgot them? You want to know what happened? Yeah. I was on, in my bed, on my
0: laptop, wearing my glasses last week. I said, I gotta go get something out of the car. I put the laptop down and the glasses down on the bed and went and got something out of my car, came back, and they were gone.
1: Wow, that's bizarre.
0: And I think my new puppy, like, grabbed them and did something with them.
1: Oh, that's gonna be a treat to find later on.
0: I mean, dude, I've looked everywhere, and they've literally vanished.
1: But the puppy left your laptop yeah huh well that's weird yeah i know well anyway i'm waiting are you getting some new ones did you go to Eckerd or cvs or duane reed or whatever i probably should
0: have just gotten some little cheapy readers because that's kind of all i need them for you know
1: right or did you use your monocle oh man i should have brought my monocle (laughs) that's a great idea Mm
0: -hmm. all right well i'm full of them uh, I did not, so I'm just waiting for new glasses, and they don't even—they don't have the frames that I've had, so I had to pick up new ones, which always stinks. Yeah, because yeah. I did just none of them look, you know,
1: good. Well, if you can kind of recreate the last ones, they look good. Well, I'm trying. Well, I guess one more quick question on this: <laughs> How is driving here? Uh,
0: reckless, dangerous? Oh no, no, no! I just need them for reading. I'm, I'm oh, fine okay. with everything I else.
1: You. Okay, good, good,
0: good. I don't read while I drive anymore.
1: That's smart, too, even though you could with your glasses. That's correct. Uh, so, Chuck, we're talking today about the National Security Council. Uh-huh. And uh, up until I started researching this, I, I thought that that was specifically an American thing, but it turns out most countries have their own National Security Council, and they fairly closely resemble this kind of thing. Sure, I would I would guess that. But I, I also realized I really had no idea what the National Security Council did yeah. But it's like, it's a pretty it's a pretty genius idea. Um and it was one that was implemented by the US Congress, I should say the American one was, uh back in 1947 and it was basically like, "Hey, you've got competing groups here that are all trying to shape um, American foreign policy. Yeah. Whether it's through diplomacy with the State Department or through military with the Department of Defense or the military itself, um, or, you know, by... Um, CIA? Yeah, the CIA, by snooping. Um the, or, or even groups as disparate as like the Department of Energy or the Department of the Treasury. Yeah. Uh, all of these groups have their own objectives in shaping policy or responding to a, a crisis as far as foreign policy goes, right? For sure. And if you take all of these people and put them in a room together and say, fight it out, and the, the, the president gets to watch and laugh and then pick what he or... Eventually, she uh, thinks is the best to- the best option. Then you have basically a, 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 the best ideal version of um, hashing something out I- I- through a group that you could possibly hope for, and that's the point of the National Security Council.
0: Yeah, but one thing I and we're going to talk about the Situation Room specifically. But one thing I learned in researching that part of it was uh, this kind of well, not chilling quote, very sensible quote, but still a little chilling, is there's always more intelligence information available than there is time for senior decision makers to read.
1: Right, yeah. (laughs) So
0: basically, like, you know, there's more than they even have. So you need committees and staffs of people that can distill the most important stuff down to its most important core.
1: Right. And and the way to do this, the, the way that it has generally been done through the national security council is by decentralizing, um, responsibility for watching over these different things, whether it be like a specific policy, like energy policy and the way it relates to foreign, foreign countries, right. Or, um, uh, like territories, like say, uh, some, some groups responsible for the middle East, you have all these different groups that are responsible for keeping an eye on this stuff, thinking about American policy, thinking about how state and American policy is changing or evolving as, say, a situation or a new leader um, emerges in a different area. Um, and then as crises or needs for decisions arise, then the need to talk about this policy it bubbles up and up and up through the hierarchy until finally it gets to the point where there's – like secretaries, uh, cabinet-level secretaries who are saying, "Mr. Again, or eventually, Madam President, uh, we need a decision on this. Here are our options."
0: Yeah, it is incredibly complex. Like you said, it's not just like, um, you know, what what bad leader in the world is doing something today. It's that plus about a thousand other things. Yeah, from like you know. Like you said, it could be as is something as simple as uh or not as simple, but as like non threatening as, you know, a, a, an energy policy with a country with a new leader, like you mm-hmm. said. You know, right. there's something that needs attention outside of our borders.
1: Right. And and by making it bubble up f- through these levels of hierarchy, you have people who have increasing levels of responsibility and as each level of responsibility starts saying, yeah, this is worth kicking up to the next higher level because we really do need some sort of decision on this. It takes on further and further credence, right? Yeah. Until it reaches that highest level, the actual, what's actually called the National Security Council. Um, and when, when it reaches that level, hopefully a decision will be made, but that's not necessarily the cases we'll see. Should we talk about history? Let's talk history, man. You know I love to. Uh,
0: so our article on this was okay. Um, and once supplemented with other supplemented,
1: I'm going to, I like that. I like it too.
0: I'm going to keep that. Once (laughs) supplemented with other things. (laughs) uh, (laughs) Pisketi. I had a friend growing up who said that. Um, and it was one of those things where I would say, say spaghetti and he'd yeah. say spaghetti. I would say spaghetti and he'd say "peschetti."
1: Yeah. <laughs> and he'd just like pinch the bridge of your nose and shake your head. Basically. As a four year old? Uh,
0: no, it was, this is was like early teens. Um, no, that's not good. All right. So throughout history, we had not, his, we have not historically had the National Security Council. Um, because I think in the earlier days, presidents had their sort of inner circle that, kind of acted like what eventually the National Security Council, how how they would counsel and advise, but they were just known as sort of like, you know the The bros of the president <laughs> <laughs> pretty much you know
1: yeah it was it was like who do you trust or specifically yeah. who who has the expertise needed to help guide your decision on this right right and I think one of the reasons why there wasn't a National Security Council for most of history is because most presidents kind of bristle at the idea of sure. having a bureaucracy hoisted or foisted on them yeah. right where they're just like no 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 I got this I just I need to ask who I need to ask at any given point in time and some presidents Presidents were historically known for even even the people that they asked advice from, they'd be like, thank you for your advice. I'm rejecting it outright. Right. Like, like Lincoln was apparently famous for that.
0: Yeah. I mean, Lincoln was a smart fellow. He probably had good ideas on his own.
1: Well, he did. Uh he also had he was he was famous for having that team of rivals, right? Where not only were people in his cabinet rivals with one another, they were rivals with him as well. Right. And uh, it really challenged him to keep people in check like his Secretary of State uh Seward, William Seward. Sure. He was big time against the Civil War from happening. He did not he didn't want it to happen. He was just like, "Okay, South Sea, it was nice you guys being a part of the Union, but we'll figure it out. We we shouldn't" We shouldn't go to war. And he was like opening lines of communication with the Confederacy, going around Lincoln and trying to subvert Lincoln's basically wishes that, that the South not secede. And Lincoln uh, said, you better watch your step. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that was a good Daniel Day Lewis. <laughs> it
0: wasn't at all. Uh, no, but you're right. He, he famously, um, kind of, you know, would listen to a device even of Seward and, and say no. You know, I'm the president and this is my choice.
1: Yeah. He said, uh, quote, if this must be done, I must do it. And, and that was kind of the way that the, the presidents, I mean, it takes a certain kind of person to be a president, right? Sure. And usually if you are elected president, you're not the kind of person who's like, what do you guys think? Hey, over there, what's your, what's your opinion? What should I do? It's, it's like, go do this. I'm the president. The end. Do it.
0: Uh, right. But as the uh, United States grew and the world grew, a little more uh, complexities uh, were brought out, obviously, especially with, in terms of foreign policy. Right. And um, especially after World War II, there were, you know, Congress was not thrilled with the way FDR kind of ran things. And they said, you know what? I think we need, and the president needs help uh, in the form of, you know, a, a body, an official body sanctioned body surrounding him to help him make decisions. Right. Uh and so eventually in nineteen forty seven uh, is when the National Security Act was passed and this council was created uh, to quote advise the President with respect to the integration of domestic foreign and military policies relating to national security and yeah. other stuff.
1: And it's it's again this is a significant act because it's saying uh Mr. President here's a bureaucracy that you didn't ask for and you don't want, but we're putting on you, on your shoulders, because this stuff is just too big now. Yeah. Like we're a superpower and we can't just leave it up to you and your formal, informal management style of ad hoc working groups that you just pull into the Oval Office whenever you need some advice. We need something far more structured than that. So we're going to pass a congressional act that we're going to force you to sign into law. And Truman actually signed it into law in 1947 and... From that point on, there was a structure that the president was expected to use when making foreign policy decisions, so that he would have all of the um, all of the options, all of the opinions, all of the varying um, factors in any any given situation before him, so that he could say, "Option D, I like it." Yeah, and like you said
0: uh, before, you know, different presidents over the years have had different, uh, there's a lot of leeway within how you want to run your National Security Council, how it's structured. Mm-hmm. It's not completely set in stone as we've seen recently, and we'll, we'll talk a little bit about what's going on now, but um, you know, throughout, since 1947 basically, each president has sort of had their own reasons for leaning on it a lot or not leaning on it that much. Initially, Truman, after, kind of right after it was passed through, was kind of uh, you know, he didn't go to meetings a lot until no. after the Korean war. And then he was like, Oh, wait a minute. I think there's a lot of value here. Um, Eisenhower being former military was sort of used to that, uh, that system of, of committees and bureaucracy. And yeah, uh, he, he kind of took to it right away and was like, No, this is great. I'm, I'm going to even kind of expand the NSC yeah. and uh, create, you know, these, uh, these special boards. And I'm, I'm actually going to create someone called the national security advisor.
1: Yeah, which is a huge thing, a huge contribution to the National Security Council that Eisenhower made. And and yeah, since he was used to the military, he's like, yeah, let's make this even more regimented than Congress wanted. And he put it to good work. But since then, it's been um, typically more pared down than what Eisenhower had. I think he had like probably the most hierarchical and decentralized and spread out National Security Council of any president. More than Obama even? Yeah, Obama had uh I think a huge bloated one, but I think it didn't have as many say like departments or committees or um that kind of thing as Eisenhower's.
0: Gotcha. Cuz Obama received a lot of criticism uh for that.
1: And from what I read right, rightly so, that that it was yeah. basically a gr- it was a huge stalling um uh, mechanism that Obama used to to put off foreign policy decisions, or to make them outside of uh, his own cabinet.
0: Well, and even if it wasn't purposeful, it's just, you know how it is with bureaucracy. The, the more bloated an organization gets, just the slower everything is going to move, and the harder it's going to be to get anything done. Yeah. Uh, that's just kind of how it works. Um, so Kennedy comes along and uh, had, a, had a kind of a disaster on his hands with the Bay of Pigs. <laughs> kind of. Which we should do a show on at some point. And, uh, so he, he looked to his, um, national security advisor, McGeorge Bundy, the Great man with name. two last names, <laughs> yeah. and said, uh, uh we need a, a, a chill room to hang out and make decisions. And he a said, chill room? how about that bowling alley?
1: Yeah, it was FDR's bowling alley, and FDR sat up from his grave and said, not my bowling alley.
0: <laughs> right, and that's when the Situation Room was created, which um, I thought this was really neat. I didn't know much about the Situation Room. I thought it was the room. Um, I didn't know that it was 5,000 square feet of different rooms Yeah, uh, on the ground floor of the West Wing. Yeah. The woodshed.
1: Yeah, that's the nickname for it, which I didn't get why they call it that, because, you know, here in the states, the woodshed's typically used in, take them out behind the woodshed, usually that means getting a spanking. Well, maybe that's bad.
0: You know. <laughs> I mean, what happens in the wood, in the situation room? They watch, they watch people get spanked. I guess. <laughs> on closed circuit <laughs> <I guess>, TV. <laughs> I, I
1: guarantee they do.
0: Uh, should we take a break and then talk about the Situation Room a little more? Yeah, yeah, let's. Alright.
1: So, Chuck, we're talking about Situation Room, uh, and... Not with Wolf Blitzer. No, never. And um, it was started with Kennedy, yeah. right? And uh, did you see the picture in that one of the articles you sent me of the Situation Room? I think it was the woodshed one.
0: One of them had, like... Dozens and dozens of pictures, which kind of surprised right, me. Right,
1: that one, that one. But there was a picture in there, and I think it was the original Situation Room that they, uh, that Kennedy had set up. And basically, it was a bunch of chairs and like a huge map of the world on the wall. Yeah, that was some Situation Room, it's like the War Room from uh, yeah. *Strange Love*. They call in like a ninety-eight-year-old civil servant to come in and move a <laughs> from, you know, Ecuador to Guatemala. Right. <laughs> yeah, and then he just shuffle back out. Uh, this thing apparently
0: used to be, I mean, it went under a big renovation in 2006 and apparently before that was a, um, I don't get the idea that it was necessarily, um, antiquated, but it wasn't certainly up to the kind of modern technological, uh, level that it needed to be. Let's just say that.
1: Yeah. I also have the impression that it was, um, a lot more, uh, luxurious originally but that things like the mahogany paneling actually made it hard to hear people on speakerphone. Right. Um, so they, they kind of just updated it to probably much more in line of what people thought it looked like all along.
0: Right. It's That's got, what it looks like now. Yeah. That, that main room where, you know, you've probably seen the most photos of has six flat screens. Um, very secure, obviously, for video conferencing with whoever you want around the world. Mm-hmm. Uh, it links directly to Air Force One, which is kind of neat. Uh, they have, you know, private, uh, meeting rooms, private phone booth rooms, uh, secure video rooms. It's like, you know, it's kind of like what you would expect. Um, it, you can't text from there. You can't like, <laughs> you know, they don't want things leaking out of there. So it's just, and it is not a bunker like a lot of people might think, but. Yeah,
1: there's some windows to the exterior of the White House.
0: Yeah, but it, it feels like a bunker in that. All these, you know, kind of very private and secure areas, but it's not like deep underground or anything like that.
1: Right, right. Yeah. I think the, the room where there's that famous photo of everybody in the Obama National Security Council watching the Bin Laden raid. The Bin Laden spanking? Yeah. Yeah. Behind the woodshed. Um, and they, uh, that, that, I think that that is a, it's an enclosed windowless room that's, that is cut off. Yeah. It has kind of bunker-like, Qualities, but it's the the whole the whole interior itself is not a bunker. It's not underground, like you said.
0: Correct. Uh, they have a staff, the Situation Room staff. It's about thirty people in general, and there are they're organized into what's called watch teams, and, and these watch teams do uh, well. They don't take the night off. It's twenty four seven monitoring of everything, basically, um, and it says there's usually three duty officers, a communications assistant and an intelligence analyst on each watch team. Right. And, um, you know, presidents throughout the years have used the situation room sparingly sometimes. Uh, I think in the case of Kennedy, he liked to be in the Oval Office a little more. Um, and they say Lyndon Johnson was in the situation room so much that he even moved his Oval Office chair down there. Oh, uh, really? Yeah. Nixon and Ford apparently never used the room. H.W. Uh, Bush and Clinton used it a lot. Huh. Uh, and in that 2006 expansion, they included um uh, offices for Homeland Security uh, Council now, and the White House Chief of Staff's office is down there now. Right. Which is pretty interesting. But um apparently you get nominated to
1: be part of the personnel. Oh, yeah. I'm quite sure it is a highly prestigious tour. They're two-year tours. Yeah. And I'm sure it's just absolutely grueling. Because basically they make you watch cable news from around the world all day long. And there's also tons of, uh, cables coming in from the, uh, from various embassies around the country. All of the intelligence, raw intelligence is, is coming through, um, this room, right? So apparently after the Bay of Pigs, Kennedy was like, I think he felt cut off from actual raw intelligence. That yeah. He hadn't been presented with the correct actual intelligence. So. He created this Situation Room to basically circumvent the, the intelligence community and to, to have his hands on raw intelligence, right? So you've got intelligence coming from around the world going to the various intelligence agencies, but each intelligence agency is also commanded to send their raw intelligence to the Situation Room. Yeah. And then it's up to the Situation Room staff to say... Uh, this seems important. This isn't that important. <laughs> this is pretty important. And then they compile it all into different briefings that the president gets uh, daily, usually in the morning and in the evening as well.
0: Yeah, and if you're part of this uh, staff, you're you're like we said, handpicked for that two year thing. And you're, they said, you know, it's it's a very big deal. You have to have an even temperament. Um, you have to be cool under pressure. You have to be able to have these spur of the moment. Coherent, intelligent conversations, like with the president, on a moment's notice. Yeah,
1: you can't be like, "President, <laughs> yeah. I can't believe it's you." Uh,
0: and apparently, um, this article said, you know, I think this from the CIA. It said, you know, you need to check your ego at the door at this job. Um, one uh, director, uh, situation room director, said to an incoming duty officer, "Just remember, there are many important people who work in the White House, and you're not one of them." <laughs> I love that quote. I do too. Uh, so you know the. It varies with the presidents, but basically every day the watch team puts together something called the morning book uh, for the president, the vice president, and, you know, whoever on the White House staff is, I guess, authorized to get this. Right. Uh, And in this morning book is the – well, it's a a daily affirmation. (laughs) Right. It's the first thing.
1: You're worth it.
0: Uh, The National Intelligence Daily is in there. The State Department's morning summary is in there. Uh, any kind of intelligence reports, um, and then I think a, a family circus cartoon,
1: <laughs> right? Just to keep things light, right? <laughs> and right. in it, in it, PJ says Pasquetti, <laughs> <laughs> uh, and then the morning
0: book is this is in the car of the National Security Advisor when they're picked up, and they also have the President's Daily Brief. That's the CIA's daily prepared uh, briefing, basically, mm-hmm. and like this is every day. These are these briefs. And reports that these senior people and staff get every single morning of every single day of every year.
1: Right. And, and just to give you kind of an, an, an idea of how, how much information is coming into these poor saps 24 hours a day. If something does happen, right? If there's like a crisis somewhere around the world, there's like a revolution breaking out. Um, you would have all of the people who are involved in that crisis, say that area, or it's related to, again, energy, or say it's like an Ebola outbreak that's suddenly like sweeping. So you'd have all the people involved in that coming into the situation room, right? Mm -hmm. And just being like, "We, "We give us all the information you got. Keep us updated. Tell us what's going on, like every five seconds. But if you're the situation room staff, you're like, that's great. I understand you're having a crisis right now, but we're still trying to pay attention to the rest of the world too. Right. Like a crisis is... I don't, it's obviously it's not meaningless to these people but it's all it's all relative because they can't just stop paying attention to China because there's an Ebola outbreak in Africa correct you know yeah so that they I I, I my hat's off to them for being able to keep up with all of this stuff yeah and and
0: you know obviously certain times are a little more calm, relatively speaking, than others, but...
1: Yeah, I don't think I'd be very good at this. But there's never
0: a, a day where there's not something going on in the world
1: mm-hmm. that
0: uh, at least whoever in that region is going to feel is super important to c- catch the president's eye. Right. You know?
1: You got to put something in those intelligence briefings.
0: Like, you know, there's a, a Russian plane in this airspace, and we don't know why.
1: Right. Right. You know, if there's one thing I've learned from researching this episode, Chuck, it's that the United States is very nosy. <laughs> yeah? Yeah. So that's the situation, Room, Chuck, and it's almost kind of like its own thing, right? It's like a one of those old-timey tenement clotheslines directly between it and the president, if the president so chooses, or at least the National Security Council staff, which makes the National Security Council kind of its own thing. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like, it, it's its own, it definitely is its own agency, but if you look back at the original congressional mandate, the, the, the point of it was, it was supposed to be a forum, a place where the different, um, heads of, of departments and cabinet members came together and said, this is what we need to do. No, this is what we need to do. Mr. President, choose, right? But with this, this, the addition of the situation room and some other, um, some other moves that presidents have made, like creating the position of the national security advisor, it has become its own party, its own thing to where, yes, it's responsible for coordinating policy and calling meetings and getting everybody to the table, but it also, it's bringing its own views and policies on policies now. Whereas before it was just supposed to be a, a a place where the, the existing cabinet members came and talked about policy. So that was a big change. And, and um, I think, that that took place beginning with Eisenhower and the uh, the creation of the National Security Advisor, but definitely also the creation of the Situation Room and this direct pipeline to the President for raw intelligence as well.
0: Yeah, and like we said earlier, like each President can kind of organize things how they like, you know, how, how they prefer to have things organized. And um, you know, Johnson, he would have uh, Lyndon Johnson apparently had regular Tuesday working lunches where he brought together the CIA director, chairman of joint chiefs of staff, secretary of state and defense. Mm-hmm. And they all had, you know, uh, salad wraps every Tuesday <laughs> and, and chatted about what was going on.
1: <laughs> Ty Basil was Johnson's favorite. <laughs> uh,
0: under Nixon, apparently he, you know, he obviously worked so closely with uh, Kissinger that I get the feeling that he didn't he didn't like meetings with a large amount of people.
1: I don't think he trusted very many people that Nixon. <laughs> That's probably a good way to say it. And then, of course, Ford did exactly what Nixon did. Sure. Big surprise. Uh, and then I don't, I think you said Carter didn't use it very much? Uh,
0: well, this art, I mean, our article at least says, um, that Carter, it, it said that he kind of had his own ideas and the, um, the NFC was not as much of uh, a behind the scenes manager as what they call oh, it, as major. maybe with other administrations.
1: Yeah, he used the national security advisor as kind of a, a policy mouthpiece to the country and said, so This is the way the, the president feels. He was like a spokesperson. Um, and that, that, that kind of made the, the national security advisor a lot more prominent, which is actually something that had been started under the Nixon administration, when he appointed Henry Kissinger. Yeah. Or when he had Henry Kissinger as his national security advisor. Um, because Kissinger, Kissinger bucked the trend in that the national security advisor went from somebody who's in charge of coordinating policy, getting everybody to the table, figuring out, you know, what the president needed to know, to actually formulating foreign policy. Right. Um, which I think is another thing that some presidents have tasked or have not tasked uh successive national security advisors with but that was a big change because that you know kissinger was saying this is this is how the u.s needs to um respond to this kind of thing or this this is the way our energy policy should be i keep going back to that well but it's a it's a great well yeah
0: um you know reagan comes along and uh after carter and Uh, really changes things with the NSC (laughs) uh, to the point where we decided just to do an entirely new podcast and not talk about this much on Iran-Contra. Yeah. Uh, But to say that there was overreach going on under his NSC is is probably a bit of an understatement.
1: Yeah, he turned it into like a clandestine covert operations agency. It's nuts what he did with it.
0: It is. Um, H.W. Bush came along and kind of restored order a bit and apparently set up a really good system uh, like a good a working system um, with his his flowchart and all these committees that were going on, right. and apparently he he was so successful in sort of just kind of making it a um a truly functioning body that uh that that Bill Clinton um his his little uh his little buddy almost said little buddy George W Bush <laughs> sure I guess his son I guess they were buddies.
1: They're buddies at Davos and stuff like that. Uh, they
0: and then, together. <laughs> and then Obama, they all kind of followed suit, following H.W. Bush's um, uh, sort of organiza- organizational flow. Yeah. Uh, because it worked so well.
1: Yeah, and it's basically um, well, I, I guess we should talk about it, huh? You want to take a break first?
0: Yeah, and talk about these committees. Yeah, org
1: charts right. coming up right after this. <music> So, Chuck, um, let's break down the National Security Council. All right. Let's break it down for him, fella.
0: There are committees now um, within <clears throat> the NSC.
1: Are we going from bottom to top? Sure. Okay. Go, go ahead. Start at the bottom. Okay. Fine. So you've got policy coordinating committees. The PCC. So the policy coordinating committees, right, they basically uh, are – they have a focus a specific focus whether it's on a region or a uh, a a particular interest maybe energy and um these these committees are made up of people from different agencies whether it's you know the intelligence community or the Department of Energy, or who whoever has a stake in that uh, region or that particular policy, right? And th- they're made up of experts on it. But you know, they're—I don't want to say they're low level. They're within their actual agency. They're—they're they're probably. Pretty high up. Sure. Um, and they come together and they're keeping an eye on stuff, right? They're monitoring changes. They're maybe saying, we're bored. We need to come up with a brand new policy for America to undertake in this regard or in this region, right? Yeah. And um, let's say a crisis comes along. And let's say that this is the uh, Middle East Policy Coordinating Committee. Something happens. Oh, I don't know. There's a gas attack in Syria, right? Right. This this policy committee is – obviously, there's so, there will be some other parallel thing from the raw intelligence going through the um, Situation Room. But this committee would also spring into action, and it would start bubbling up. Um, it would start writing policy papers. They would um, dust off old theories and hypotheses, and they would go to the people directly above them, the uh, deputies committee, and they would say, we need to get the president – Moving on this, whatever this is,
0: yeah. And the deputies committee is headed by the deputy national security advisor, and um, things are getting kind of serious at this point. Yeah, um, all the deputy heads of the departments um, are included on this committee, and I get the feeling that I get the feeling that this is just the the, the next level of of weeding out things.
1: Right, exactly.
0: And um, eventually, if it makes its way to the principals committee. Mm -hmm. Uh, that's just below the actual NSC and that is headed by the national, or I guess convened is what they say by the national security advisor, uh, him or herself.
1: And the national security council is actually made up of the president, the vice president, the secretary of state, secretary of defense, secretary of energy, I believe, uh, and the national security advisor. And then there's other. Uh, what are called observers or advisors, specifically the director of national intelligence, who is the person who's in charge of the entire intelligence community, from the NSA and the CIA to Coast Guard intelligence. Everybody who's snooping on behalf of the United States, this person is the the top of that whole community. And the uh, chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, who is the um, representative of the all armed forces of the military so it's the military's voice in the national security council and once these these people are talking about an issue or a policy it's a it that's about as high level as it gets and and the point of it reaching this committee is that these people are all saying this is the best option no no this is the best option we need to talk some more no we need to shoot some missiles off and then the president has to decide yeah,
0: and um, you know, like we said, th- th- it can be organized within certain bounds of the law as the president sees fit. And um, you know, anyone who f- follows the news in uh, the United States um or abroad about the United States, um there was quite a shakeup in, you know, earlier this year when uh, our current president uh excluded the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff and the Director of National Intelligence from um they weren't like banned from the NSC. But they weren't on the list of like, hey, you you need to be at all these meetings all the time. Right. It was more like you uh, – I think the direct quote was you shall attend where issues pertaining to your responsibilities and expertise are be, to be discussed. Right. And um, there was a big uproar in the press, and the White House downplayed it and said, you know, this is not a real change. Like in past administrations, the uh, chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff and director of national intelligence aren't at all the meetings either. They're usually at the ones that pertain to them. So, um
1: what's what gives what's the deal?
0: Yeah, like quit making a big deal about this. And also this um this guy Steve Bannon my uh, my political strategist is a is a full-fledged member. That was a big deal. For a little while. <laughs> right. Because just this week uh as we're recording in real time, uh, Mr. Bannon has been excused and of course he um the White House and Bannon tried to play it up like, you know what, he was never going to be on there permanently. He was in there to uh, undo the work of Susan Rice, uh, who was Obama's national security advisor, um, is what Bannon said. And then officials said, no, he was actually there to monitor Michael Flynn, uh, the first national security advisor who is already gone. And now that he's gone, we don't really need Bannon. His work is done. That's really all we kind of wanted him in there for to begin with.
1: Just. just Crazy to watch this,
0: yeah. And I, um, mean, I, like I don't each... think anyone bought that. Uh, right. <laughs> I don't even think Republicans bought that spin. Yeah, um, there was clearly a, uh, a, and is currently clearly there's a internal struggle going on uh, with with apparently Steve Bannon and uh, the president's son-in-law uh, Jared Kushner, mm-hmm. and um, to the point where the president was like, you know, you guys work this stuff out, or I'm going to solve it, and family matters to Donald Trump, and I think Bannon understands that.
1: Yeah, it, it definitely looks like the knives are out for Bannon. He doesn't have a lot of friends elsewhere in the White House, so if the president is turning on him, then it's that's not good news for Steve Bannon.
0: Yeah, I mean, we'll see how this plays out, but just today where you know, um, Donald Trump was quoted as kind of, the, the, the quotes were very cool on his support for Bannon today. Cool? Cool, as in, um, he was kind of like, "Hey, I think the quote was something like, you know, he, he's a good guy, but you know, he didn't hook up with me until kind of recently."
1: Yeah, I saw that. <laughs> like, that. That's
0: that's not a ringing endorsement, you know.
1: So, so when he put Bannon on, uh, like he gave him a, a permanent seat on the National Security Council, that was a big deal because presidents have had political advisors on their National Security Council that's been done before, but never like a permanent reserve seat at all the meetings. And it sent like a really big message. And the message was the political ramifications of a, a decision or a policy outcome are just as important as say like the military or diplomatic ramifications of it. They're going to be, it's going to be taken into account just as much. And I think that's why a lot of people were chilled by that because you, you don't want it to be political. You don't want your decisions to be, you know, well, what, how will this affect my vote or something like that down the road? And that's how a lot of people took Bannon's appointment to the National Security Council. Yeah. This new guy who came in after Flynn, H.R. McMaster has apparently Alleviated a lot of worry by a lot of people. He's he's a three star general. He's only one of three active duty military to serve as national security advisor. Um, so he's an active duty military guy, and he um, he's apparently well respected inside and outside of the military. Yeah, didn't he? I think he re-
0: didn't he restore the chairman of the joint chiefs of staff and uh, yeah director of national intelligence.
1: Yes, he did. Yeah. and and the reason why that was a bizarre move um and apparently it's it's that's George W. Bush did the same thing but the the since two thousand one there's not any American foreign policy issue or crisis that doesn't involve the intelligence community and the military right it's just the the direction America's gone so I mean, that kind of falls in line with Trump's stated policy of isolationism, just kind of saying, no, we're going to rein that back in. I think that's probably what he was doing. But I don't know that a lot of elites in Washington have um, faith that he has an actual plan rather than was just sending a a message. You know what I mean?
0: Right. Well, it was short lived. Yeah.
1: Yeah. So this McMaster guy though, he um he actually made his name by writing a dissertation criticizing Lyndon Johnson's um military advisors on the National Security Council during Vietnam. He uh he wrote his thesis and it got turned into a best selling book called Dereliction of Duty. Oh, that's right. And a lot of people are like, um man, this guy's great. He's all about being open and upfront and honest with the president. Uh, and then other people read the book and said, oh, this guy is a is a military guy who's who's saying that you shouldn't listen to the president's wishes and the military should just act on its own. So I think most people subscribe to the former reading of it, yeah. that, that he actually is a pretty, pretty um smart guy and is not is not calling for the military to, to act independently of the president's wishes, more that he was indicting. Um, the president's advisors for not being forthright and upfront and clear, uh, and was just kind of going along with Johnson and telling him what he wanted to hear as far as Vietnam went. Oh. It, it's interesting stuff. That guy's an interesting dude. McMaster is.
0: Yeah, it really is. Um, the, the NSC themselves, like, you know, obviously we've kind of talked ad nauseum about the meetings and the bureaucracy, but aside from this, um, one of their, one of the other things that they do is, you know, if the president has a call with a foreign leader, um, there's going to be a senior staff member from the NSC there with them. They're going to brief him beforehand and say, Hey, you're going to, you're about to get on a call with, uh, let's say the leader of, uh, North Korea. And <laughs> <laughs> yeah, those calls
1: happen all the time.
0: And they, uh, they will probably talk, want to talk about this. And this is sort of the important things that we need to cover. And they may
1: mention this, and you may want to respond this way. Don't talk about how much you like that <laughs> Seth Rogen movie, The Interview. Avoid that at all costs. Avoid that. Did you see that? Yeah. Was it any good? Oh, you didn't see it? No. It was pretty good. It was pretty funny. Yeah. It, yeah, it was, Um, I mean, it's a Seth Rogan, James Franco taking on a really pronounced opinion on a specific policy matter, but it was pretty funny.
0: Yeah. I liked it. I was about to say maybe I'll see it, but I know I won't. Uh I, I would recommend
1: it if you're ever oh, okay. just sitting around, watch it. All right. Yeah.
0: You know? <laughs> so um, you know, this phone call will take place and the and that NSC staffer is generally there through the call and taking notes and then that then is super useful information to take back down to their committee or subcommittee. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's just like another one of their duties basically is what, making sure the president has all the information on, uh, basically any meeting or call that they're going to take with any foreign leader.
1: Yeah. And so what I'm, I think you can sum up the national security council like this, right? Somebody has an idea. Let's say that they decided that, um, it would be great for America's position in the world if we dedicated, um, June 1st as National Flower Power Day. And it comes up from a committee and keeps bubbling up and bubbling up and bubbling up. And each time that passes from one committee to another, somebody's saying, yes, I think this is a good idea, and I'm going to put my reputation on the line by saying it should be taken to the president. And finally, it goes all the way to the National Security Advisor, who is the gatekeeper to the president on all matters of foreign policy and national security. And he or she decides... What's worth taking to the president? And specifically, what's worth waking the president up at 3 a.m.? Yeah. Have you ever heard that story about um, Carter, Jimmy Carter's National Security Advisor? No. Are you ready to hear me drone on? (laughs) Sure. Okay. So back in November of 1979, at 3 a.m. around then, um, Zbigniew Brzezinski who is the National Security Advisor to uh, Carter, um, got a call from NORAD that showed that the Soviet Union had launched 2,200 nuclear missiles at the United States, and they were on their way. And it was up to Brzezinski to decide whether this was... A fluke and a glitch in Norad's system. Or if it was just
0: a teenager in the Pacific Northwest. Exactly. Trying to change his grades.
1: Right. So this guy in the middle of the night had the terrible job of, do I kick this up to the president and let the person who could launch a nuclear counterattack on the Soviet Union make that decision? Or do I sit on this and say, this is not real. This is a fluke. This is a Norad glitch. And uh, he had to decide it. Wow. And he decided, no, it's a glitch. And he was right. It was a glitch. And apparently that happened a number of times. Uh, we came very close to launching a counterattack against a phantom strike that hadn't actually been launched during the Cold War. And uh, Brzezinski apparently had nerves of steel when it came to stuff like that. But that's a pretty good example of what a national security advisor is meant to do. Like, you're the person, the last person to decide whether to take it to the president and escalate it or not. Wow. I say wow as well.
0: Well, and uh, because I know people the, of keen eye of pop culture history will point this out, I will beat you to the punch and note that that is the second Dabney Coleman reference in the show.
1: Oh, yeah, nice. Was not expecting that. I forgot. He was great in both movies. Yeah, so if we can Love just
0: work in a nine-to-five reference before it's all out.
1: <laughs> I think he just did.
0: <laughs> Man, he was great. I really loved, loved Dabney Coleman.
1: Uh, is he still around?
0: I think he's still alive and doesn't act much.
1: Oh, well, good for him. He's
0: enjoying life. unless he's, uh, not with unless, he's unless he's recently passed on.
1: Yeah, I don't know. I could be thinking of that movie, Short Time, where he was dying and tried to get himself killed so his family could get his pension. That was a good movie, too. Which one? Short Time. Don't think I've seen that one, either. Oh, check it out. Oh, you need to do a double feature, Short Time, in the interview. Hey, he's still alive. Confirmed. Corrupt. Hey, Dabney Coleman. <laughs> uh, you got anything else? Um, I don't think so. Um. I have one more movie recommendation. Oh, what's that? It's a here? documentary called The Fog of War. Oh, yeah,
0: sure. That's all so that in the good. theater.
1: That was a good one. Oh, and I have a reading recommendation, too. 1491? Of course. <laughs> but have you ever read, yeah, have you seen Zero Dark Thirty? Oh, yeah. Okay, so apparently, as far as um, Seymour Hersh, the great investigative journalist says, Uh-huh. That is all BS. It's government propaganda. Oh yeah. And that whole official Mark Bowden Zero Dark Thirty account of how bin Laden was found, not necessarily the raid itself, but how he was found and everything leading up to the raid. Right. Is is just spin and that it actually was much simpler and less glamorous than that. Um and he wrote uh, a series of essays for the London Review of Books and specifically the killing of Osama bin Laden, that one. Um, kind of lays out the whole thing behind it. It's pretty interesting.
0: To so how it really went down was they were like, we need to find where Osama bin Laden is. And someone called in and said, he's right over there. I see
1: him. He's in a McDonald's. It went almost like that, <laughs> except the first part where they said, we need to find out where he is, didn't happen. Somebody just walked in.
0: And then said, hey, he's a McDonald's. And they said, we should spank him.
1: Yeah. Remember the time I saw John Cryer at McDonald's in Los Angeles? <laughs> I, do, I do remember that. The day after the Charlie Sheen freakout was going on? Yeah. Man, that was... What a day to see John Cryer.
0: Yeah. Was he elated? Or was he... No, he was stress-eating
1: stress McDonald's breakfast. Yeah, because his... In uh, $100,000 Mercedes. Yeah,
0: his um, his cash cow of a TV show was being threatened Yeah, by his kooky co-star. <laughs> Didn't he pay money to go see Charlie Sheen? Did I? Yeah.
1: No, no, no. Mike Tyson. Uh, Okay. No, I've never seen Charlie I
0: remember when he went on tour. For some reason, I thought you went to that. No. But I I have more respect for for you than to think that you actually would have paid money for that.
1: Right. Gotten in free, maybe. Right. (laughs) Uh, If you want to know more about the National Security Council, just go to the White House and knock on the front door and ask him to give you a tour. Right? Yep. Uh, In the meantime, actually, you probably shouldn't do that. Uh, You just type... National Security Council in the search bar. At How stuff works, and it'll bring up this article. And since I said that, it's time for listener mail.
0: Uh, my friend Tracy called Steve Bannon. And, hey, uh, she said he looks like a beach bar drunk.
1: <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah, I can see that actually.
0: Yeah, like he looks like he should be wearing flip flops in every photo. Well, he used to, and then somebody said you need
1: to start wearing suits. Right. <laughs>
0: Um, all right, I'm going to call this um, empathy response. Hey, guys, listen to Empathy today. I had a good laugh at Chuck's impression of a doctor falling to pieces because something similar happened to me when I was 14. I was a uh, junior in high school, summer between junior and senior year. My parents sent me to scout camp. A few days in the trip, one of the other kids cast a fishing line without any bait, and uh, I walked right behind him, and the hook lodged right into my eyeball. Uh. Not the skin around my eye, the eyeball. Uh, A few hours later, I was at Valley Children's near Fresno and uh, for emergency surgery, waiting for them to prepare an operating room, and the anesthesiologist came in and looked at my eye and shouted, oh my God, (laughs) his eye is going to collapse. (laughs) Uh, I'm transgender, so calling me he made sense at the time, by the way. Uh, Hearing a doctor say something like that about my eyeball would probably have freaked me out in any other circumstance, but they had me drugged up pretty good at the time. Um, still, I remember thinking it, the reaction was probably not how a doctor uh, should react to things if they want to keep their patients calm. Uh, fortunately, it had a happy ending. The talented surgeon who took care of me got the hook out without any damage to my sight. And we've the been only, married ever since. <laughs> the only evidence it ever happened is uh, a very faint scar on the white of my eye and pupil oh, that does, uh, doesn't close quite as much as the one in the other eye.
1: Aren't your mirror neurons just going berserk right now? In the worst way.
0: Well, it's funny um, because she said, I, I didn't read that part, but she said, get ready for your mirror neurons to fire.
1: Oh, yes. At the beginning.
0: Uh, anyhow, thanks for all the laughs and knowledge you guys drop on me during my commute. Started my job, new job as a science writer for Caltech last week. Sweet. And I've been recommending Stuff You Should Know to my very smart new coworkers. And that is from uh, Emily Velasco.
1: Thanks a lot, Emily. Great one. That was terrible and horrible, but great.
0: Yes. I'm glad it all worked out
1: for you. And good luck as a science writer. Send us all of your interesting articles. Please. Uh, if you have some interesting articles you want us to read, maybe we'll turn it into a Stuff You Should Know episode. Who knows? Uh, you can tweet them to us at SYSK Podcast. You can also hang out with me on Twitter at Josh underscore um underscore Clark. You can hang out with Chuck on Facebook at Charles W. Chuck Bryant. Or you can hang out with us at Stuff You Should Know on Facebook, too. You can send us both and Jerry an email to stuffpodcast at howstuffworks.com. And as always, you can come hang out with us at a luxurious home on the web, stuffyoushouldknow.com.
0: For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit howstuffworks.com.